0: So we have been in a series called Glory to God in the Highest, Songs of Advent, working through certain songs um, that we sing this time of year and reflecting on their origin and, and where they're, how they're rooted in Scripture and what they're about, and it's been good. I, it's been good for me, at least. Uh, so special shout out to the, the four guys that went before me, Jared, um, I don't know the order, Jared, Scott, Jesse, John. I'm really grateful that God has blessed our church with men and, and women who know the, God, the Word of God, can teach the Word of God, and, and faithfully follow. And, and as a pastor, I'm often burdened um, often burdened uh, for our church and our people, uh, not just that we would be a good church by whatever way you want to define that, or be successful however you want to define that, but that we would really love the Lord, we'd really love His Word, and that we'd be marked by it, that we'd love one another, and that'd be evidence of our faith, that, that we would proclaim Christ in all of life, always, and, and people would see that. And, and I know that we hope for these things, and sometimes we see that in glimpses, but then often we're distracted, and often we're focused on ourselves. And I think Christmas um, highlights both the good and the bad of these things. And so I spent a lot of time, especially this week, um, knowing I was going to preach this sermon, Reflecting on what do we really need and not just what would be a good sermon, not just what does the song mean, but what do we really need? What do we need to remember and how, how does that shape our life? And so I don't know how different this is going to be than a typical sermon for me because I don't think I have a typical it's other than I might cry. Uh, that's pretty normal. Um, but I really want us to go deep into God's word without it being a time of study but that we would really reflect on these truths, that we'd see our lives shaped by them. And so my hope this morning, I didn't know who was going to be here. Our church is different than most. Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day are typically the biggest Sundays of the year for churches. All our young people go to be with their families, so it's different for us. So I didn't know who was going to show up. So in my head, I just imagined who would sit under the Word of God and whoever it might be, whatever problems they bring into this room, whatever life experience they've had, whatever emotions they feel about Christmas, I hope and I pray that the Spirit would move and that we would leave this place more in love with Christ, more amazed that He would come and be with us and and see that clearly we have a mission to bring that good news to a world that's hopeless. Um, And and certainly Christmas highlights all of that, and and so does the song we're going to discuss this morning. A little bit of a review, Um, O come all ye faithful, as a call to all of God's children to adore and worship the only begotten Son of God, not just at Christmas time, and not just in a manger, but in all of life. And we also heard, come thou long-expected Jesus, a deep longing in the family of God and the saints of old who longed for Christ to come and the saints today who long for Him to return. We have a world that aches and longs for restoration. And so, come thou long-expected Jesus is a cry, a hope that He would return, but the hope is not like other hope, it's sure and because we have that hope, we have freedom from anxiety and fear in life. These are, these are my takeaways from the sermons. I don't know if you guys have the same. Uh, God rest ye married gentlemen and women, um, because in Him we actually have rest. We can truly rest. Unlike any other form of rest or laziness or self-indulgence, a true rest in Christ that, that frees us to then live on mission and, and reflect on His goodness and His grace in all of life so that others can see it. And then, O come, O come, Emmanuel, a call for us to remember the promises of God, who is faithful always, and an exhortation for us to rejoice because of those truths, uh, that we rejoice that our Rescuer has come and will return to ransom His people. He's sure to come again, and we can rejoice as we long for Him. Um, And and then today, uh, we'll talk about a a hymn, a Christmas hymn that is special to me. Um, If you don't already know what it is, I'm going to let it just sit there. I like to build anticipation. Uh, in a couple of days, though, it'll be Christmas, right? Everyone's excited about Christmas. Speaking of anticipation, people get excited about this holiday. It's filled with hope and joy and, and longing to see what's in those boxes under the tree and, and all the singing and the food and all the goodness. Um, and it'll be exciting for sure, but then it'll be over. And then there, there's no doubt going to be this sense of emptiness, especially if you didn't get what you wanted. Uh, even if you got what you wanted, you're going to want something else later on. So In a way, that kind of dies, and I'm not trying to be a spoiler or anything. Uh, So Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Uh, In part, though, Christmas is great because the world seems to pause and see Jesus. That's amazing that even a secular world would pause and see Jesus, and and I'm grateful for that, yes, Uh, but I also think that there's a sense in which the church especially can be guilty of belittling Jesus, even though... We make it about him. I think, like most things, we make it a lot about ourselves, and and this is difficult to talk about when you're supposed to be talking about happy things all, all Christmas season. And it may be difficult to try to wrap our minds around. And I promise, I'm not trying to bah, bah humbug the thing or anything. Uh, I don't know if you can use it like a verb. Um, but the decorations, the music, the the desserts, the gifts, all that's good. But if we're honest, the excitement isn't really about celebrating Jesus. Even if you say things like remember the reason for the season or you have your, your manger scene, uh, often we're distracted. Often we make it about other things. The excitement we feel about Christmas isn't really, I'm just trying to be honest, maybe I'm just talking for myself, isn't really about Jesus. It should be, but I think it often isn't. It's more about those things that come with it. And, and what I want is for us to, to just pause and consider why that is, but also how do we deal with it? It's like any other birthday party for anyone, right? It's Jesus's birthday. Like, I go to birthday parties, and I may really love the individual, and I want them to have a good day, but most of the time at the party, I'm going to be talking to other people, and I'm really just there for the cake, and I'm glad you had a birthday so I can enjoy this cake. Like, those are real thoughts. I'm just saying what you're thinking. I know you guys are that way. Those are, that's kind of how I don't, That's that's why I say the word belittle. That's kind of how we treat Christmas. It's about all these other things. I'm glad Jesus was born so we can celebrate all these other things. And I want to just step back and be honest and and reflect on that. I'm not trying to rob you of your joy this season. My hope is that we can all rightly place our hope in the only eternal source. If we're going to actually have joy, we'd find it in the source that doesn't fade when Christmas Day is over. And the gospel saturation that we often talk about means that it's all about Jesus all the time. That he saturate the gospel saturates your life. That as you enjoy food, you're enjoying Christ. That as we enjoy Christmas, good gifts, good food, good company, we'd enjoy Christ. That somehow we'd worship him in all of it. That's the hope. But I want to see us strive to make it a reality. And so in order to do that... Um, Today, I want us to consider the night our dear Savior was born as a holy night. To think about what it means that it's a holy night. And that's the night that is holy because it's set apart in history that transcends history itself. This night that our Savior entered the world. And along with His death and resurrection, the birth of Christ is worthy of celebrating all day, every day, for the rest of your lives and then into eternity If that sounds extra to you, then I think maybe you don't realize how significant this holy night was. So let's consider who exactly is lying in the manger. Scripture says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. So if you think you understand his greatness, you're wrong. His greatness is unknowable. In fact, you can't even try to figure it out. You can't search it. Some translations say that no one can fathom it. We cannot fathom his greatness. So let's try to grasp the irony as we consider the great Lord who's come to be with us. In some insignificant backwoods cow town, this baby boy was born to a young unknown couple who couldn't even find a place to stay in his hometown. And the dude, Joseph, wasn't even the legitimate father of this baby. So culturally, this is a taboo relationship. And now surrounded by the lovely aromas of livestock and their droppings, inside the barn of an innkeeper, wrapped in cloth and placed to lie in a feeding trough, the savior of the world came to be with us. The embodiment of hope is in the midst of this, a greatness that we cannot fathom is lying in a manger, the creator and redeemer of the world. Isaiah calls him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, as we heard this morning. We know him to be Emmanuel, God with us, Christ the Lord, the promised salvation for all who would ever believe, the greatest hope that we could possibly have, and nobody even knew he was born except for some low-class shepherds in a field and a few mystical foreign guys who were on their way. This is the Savior, right? A very humble entrance. And a picture of who he came to reach: the lowly, the poor, the foreigner. Isaiah prophesied that this child in Bethlehem would have the weight of governance placed on his shoulders. That that is his kingdom, the kingdom that he would rule, would be above all kingdoms. This baby in a manger. And of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there would be no end. So he would not just rule here and now in the ways we think he might rule, but for all eternity, the the picture of justice and righteousness, he would sit on a throne forever and forevermore. You see, his arrival on this holy night, I'm dropping hints, is holy because he gives hope. It's holy, like nothing else, because he brings hope. Not because it's extravagant, not because he was born to kings, not because he immediately was recognized by the world as the most precious baby ever born, but because he brought hope with him. Because he's the Lord of the universe, and he came to be with us. Us, the people of God. So let's refer to the people of God who were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air. These are the people of God. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience is the one we were enslaved to. Among whom we all once lived so that everyone in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who the Lord came to be with. It's like we were trapped in the darkness for so long. If you read the Old Testament, you see it everywhere. Trapped in darkness for so long that our eyes adjusted and we didn't even realize it was dark anymore. We didn't even realize we needed a Savior, not in the way He came to save. The problem we face is not that we sin. The problem we face is that we are sinners and we're dead in our sin, enslaved to sinful behavior. We can't help but to sin without a Savior. We need ransom. We need rescue. We need chains broken. We need... Power over sin and death that only belongs to the one who created all things. And so it's impossible for us to gain these things. Regeneration that's needed cannot be gained. New life that's needed cannot be gained. A new nature itself cannot be accomplished in our own works. We need a rescuer, someone to deliver us. And anxiously, the world has sought salvation in other things and found it nowhere. Only the Lord can make it possible. And so he shows up. He steps in. He comes, not like anyone expected, but he comes to be with us, to make the salvation possible. So think about what God is saying when he becomes Emmanuel, God with us. Son and daughter, people of God, son and daughter in the house, God came to be with you because like every good father, he loves you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He's not frustrated. And so he's like, all right, I'll come and fix it. He's not waiting on you to get things together so then you deserve him to come. He's not saying there's a future you once you've perfected all of this that I came to save. He came knowing you are who you are to be with you, to save you. He doesn't just want future you. While we were sinners, Christ came to die for us. He adores you like a perfect father loves his kids. He delights in you. Not because of anything you've done, but because of who you are. Win or loss. Success or failure, good times, bad times, His love remains. Even before He laid the foundations of the world, He saw you, He loved you, He chose you in Christ to be holy and without fault before Him. So because of Christ, God sees perfection when He looks at you. I know you don't feel that. God sees righteousness when He looks at you, even when you don't feel that. Like. God sees all that's good, all that's right, and saves you because of the righteousness of Christ, not your own. So you should find hope and freedom in that truth. And it's only possible because He came. But though there is a future glory for us, freedom from sin, freedom from suffering, there is a current suffering. Everyone senses it. It's profound, and there's something wrong with the world. There's things that are broken all around us. We've always known it since Adam and Eve left the garden. There's something wrong. We need a Savior. We long for it. There's a remedy. We don't know what it is. So we suffer pain and depression and disaster and death and destructions everywhere. But Scripture says the whole of creation groans for this salvation, not just you. The world itself knows it needs restoration. The pains of childbirth, it groans and mankind has turned to idols searching for that salvation money politics stuff the mythology of a fat old man who comes down your chimney with his magic and brings you gifts we've searched for hope in all kinds of things as ridiculous as they might sound that was a santa reference in case you didn't get it we're left broken and empty or you could say we're in sin and error pining for restoration we're weary and exhausted because of it. Because it's exhausting. We're working and seeking meaning and purpose and salvation in places it can't be found. But there's hope because there was a new and glorious morn that broke through the darkness, shining, brightly shining. This anticipated Savior came. Though not fully realized for a few decades, on a wrath-bearing, in a wrath-bearing death on a cross and, and the power of resurrection It was in this moment, in this manger for the very first time that real, sure hope took on flesh. And so we can describe it like this. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. And with that appearance came a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. There's hope. There's reason to rejoice. Light is breaking into the darkness. So how do you respond on a night like this? How do you respond to something set apart as divine? Imagine being the shepherds in this field when an angel came and said, the Lord is is here in Bethlehem. The shepherds. I don't know uh, something to compare it to uh, sanitation department. All right, garbage men. Like people who you, you need, but you don't realize you need until they don't do their job, right? These people who are low class and, and we're grateful for them, I guess, but no one really ever thinks about them. This is the shepherds in the field. Dirty, smell like sheep, right? They've been with the sheep. All, that's all they do. An angel shows up and tells them the Lord is born, and then the sky fills with angels and they're singing glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men. How do you feel in that moment? How do you respond in that moment? It's the kind of thing that puts a lump in your throat, makes your heart race, clears the sinuses. You feel me? Like this, this, you may need to change your pants. Like there's craziness going on here in these shepherds. What else can you do but fall on your knees? You praise Him. You can't deny it. You praise Him. So of course, I'm referring to the popular Christmas hymn, Silent Night. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, Holy Night. right? Or Oh, Holy Night, depending on if you put the H on the O. So they're the same. I was just kidding. Oh, Holy Night. This beautiful imagery of this song, the, the world in sin and error pining till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. These, these lyrics are rich. In imagery like you can feel it not just good use of superlatives but good use of verbs and sin and error pining like we know what pining feels like this longing for something good something you know you need something that should be here this pining and then he shows up and your soul feels worth somehow even though we can't wrap our minds around soul and we can't really understand worth because we have so many definitions. Somehow, when we say your soul felt worth, you feel it. Thank you, Lord. And, this, and this song is also rich in theology. And that is amazing considering its history, which I'm excited to share with you because it's crazy. If you don't know, if you've not Googled, like these guys are good at their Googling. I use Wikipedia, so I'm a little bit up <laughs> higher. <laughs> Uh, So around 1843, a priest of a Catholic church in a small French town wanted a Christmas poem to celebrate, not Christmas, but the renovation of a new organ. (laughs) Church has changed so much since then. He solicited the talent of an educated local poet named Placid Capot, who at eight years old was playing with his friend in a gun and shot his hand off. Actually, he shot his hand and they amputated it. Same difference. He lost his hand. And because of that, he didn't go into the family business of making barrels for wine. Instead, he went to go get an education in literature. And in doing that, he eventually became a winemaker. But he also took on this this role of a local poet. And he's somewhat known for his poetry. Um, And so this local priest went to him, which is surprising because Capot was known by the entire town to be a non-religious man. Nevertheless, he obliged and used the Gospel of Luke on a carriage ride to reflect on the birth of Christ and what it would be like to be there. And in that carriage ride, he penned the words to a poem he called Midnight Christians. Only it was in French, and I don't know how to say it. So Midnight Christians uh, to be read at Christmas Mass. And so he was so moved by his poem that he thought a a poem wouldn't suffice. And he went to a friend who was a local composer, an accomplished composer, Adolphe Charles Adams. And he asked him to write a score for this poem. And and what's interesting about Adams is he was a religious man, however, not a Catholic or a Christian. He was a Jew. And so he must have been moved by this poem about a savior that he didn't believe in to then not only write the score for this poem, but to do it in enough time for them to use it. So it was only a matter of about three weeks that the poem and the music was written and they were able to use it in this um, Christmas Eve um, celebration. And this this song was called Cantique de Noel, which is French for a Christmas carol. Um, So this song originally written in France by a non-believer and a Jew, uh, the song was, it hit Catholic churches and grew in popularity rapidly until it was discovered that Gapot was not a Christian because he decided to claim himself to be an atheist and join the socialist movement. And so Adolphe uh, was also discovered to be a Jew, and the Catholic Church does what it does well and immediately, swiftly denounced the song. Only they used the reasoning that it lacked musical taste and had was a total absent, or there was total absence of spiritual the spirit of religion. Um, So, in other words, keep that devil music out of God's house was their excuse. Uh, Nevertheless, the song continued to grow in popularity. People sang it in their homes, and it not only grew uh, within France, but it began to grow outside of France. And there was a a young American minister and abolitionist. I say he was young. He's not going to look young in the picture. John Sullivan Dwight. And this... American minister and abolitionist, which is important, was, was specifically moved by the third verse of the song, um, and he was so moved that he translated it to English and began to spread it across America during the Civil War. So it, he discovered it probably two or three years before the Civil War, but it grew in popularity because, of course, there was abolitionists, and the North in particular saw this, this song as a bit of an anthem for their, their call. And so If you don't know, the third verse claims slaves are our brothers and that Jesus came to break those chains. And so a literal translation from French to English reads like this. The Redeemer has broken every bond. The earth is free and heaven is open. He sees a brother where there was only a slave. Love unites those that iron has chained. Who will tell him of our gratitude? For all of us, he is born. He suffers and dies. Now, when you're translating things, that's why the Bible has so many translations. When you're translating things, word choice and sentence structure and all of that matters. But also when you're translating a song, rhyme scheme matters. And then it also needs to fit the musical score. So that's why the lyrics change quite a bit. But the essence of it's there in Dwight's translation. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Many versions of the song leave that verse off, um, but I find it incredibly meaningful because it tells us what Christ has taught us and came to accomplish. Not just physical slavery, but there's a spiritual slavery that he came to free us from. So during the Civil War, the song became a bit of an anthem, as I said, for the abolitionists. But lest you think John Dwight redeemed the song from its uh, secular origins. Um, he was actually not a, just a minister, but a Unitarian minister, so his doctrinal convictions were rather weak. In fact, you could call them heretical. Uh, Unitarians uh, believe in a universalism, so there's, there's not anyone who doesn't get into heaven, but, but moreover, they don't believe in a trinity. Many don't even believe Christ was divine. So to put that in a song in a translation is interesting, to say the least. There are some Other uh, facts about the translation that I'm not going to have time to get into, but please look it up. It's really interesting. Um, And there are a lot of fun facts, like the song was sang by a French army and it called for a ceasefire when they were fighting Germans. And Germans came out and they sang a Christmas song written by um, Luther. And then they decided, let's just not fight on Christmas. I don't know if that's real or not, but that's awesome if that's true. Um, But one other fun fact worth noting is a guy named Reginald Fessenden. I assume he's Canadian, a chief chemist of Thomas Edison, uh, and he used an alternator transmitter to figure out how to transmit mic sound through radio waves instead of just Morse code at a time when that was the only way to communicate. So it was December 1906. No doubt to the shock of many sailors in charge of the Morse code machines and to newspaper editors who communicated that way, they heard a voice reading Luke chapter 2 and the voice was of Reginald. And then he picked up his violin and played the first song ever transmitted over radio waves, O oh Holy Night. Many listening believed it to be a Christmas miracle because they'd never heard such a thing. And obviously we know that it was the miracle of radio waves, but it's still fascinating. The song, written by an atheistic socialist, scored by a Jew, men who didn't celebrate or believe in the Savior that it was written for, translated it to English and made popular by a universalist who may not even believe Christ was divine, and then transmitted over radio waves to forever be locked in history as that song. It may seem disappointing <laughs> to some, but I think it's amazing. It speaks highly of God's greatness, His sovereignty over things that we would never have guessed. So if you love that song and you're now like you're gonna be like the Catholic Church and ban it, relax. God's still on the throne, and the song is still loaded with truth, somehow, loaded with deep theology. And since it was first sang in some French town 170 years ago, the song has gripped hearts and stirred emotions. It has moved people to repentance, it calls for worship of the coming Savior. And it's become one of the most beloved recorded spiritual songs in history. Sales for the thousands of different versions are in the tens of millions, and it will forever stand in history as the song first heard over the radio. It's epic, it's a Christmas anthem sang by the greatest voices in musical history Nat King Cole, Josh Groban, Celine Dion, Scott Bonner, (laughs) Mariah Carey. (laughs) Despite its origins, it calls us to worship and that's why I love it. It's easily my favorite Christmas song, although NSYNC's Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays is a close (laughs) rival. I love that it's it's not just a description of a night. It's not just a, a declaration of what happened. It's prescriptive. There's direction in this song. So what do you do when the light of the world shows up? What do you do when God becomes man and dwells among us? What do we do considering who God is, what He's done, and what that means for us? What do you do? Well, the song tells you. We find the answer in the final pre-chorus and in the final chorus. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise His holy name. That's what we do. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise His name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. Fall on your knees and hear the angel voices. O night divine, O night when Christ was born. So in light of the introduction to this sermon, I, I, I want to say Advent, the season, and, and Christmas hymns serve well to reorient our hearts to the gospel narrative. I'm just not sure they do in themselves. Certainly they could, but I, I think that we too easily go through the motions and invest our energies in temporal things. And as I reflect on the history of this song, I can't help but wonder... How many slave-owning Christians with hypocritical lips saying, change shall he break, for the slave is our brother? And that weighs heavily on my heart because I know we're not out of it. I know that still in many ways the church is in error. I know that there are a lot of things we haven't figured out. I know there's a lot of ways in which we should be so amazed at our God every day when we get out of bed, amazed that He has saved us, that instead we, we wear a badge of pride saying, I'm a Christian and you're not instead of going out and serving the world, longing for them to know the Savior that we worship, we live our lives content or anxious because we don't actually believe this gospel. If we truly believe, then it would shape us. So in the same way that I'm skeptical and considering these things, I also question our integrity. And, and I, don't, I only point these things out because I, I think it draws us to repentance. I, I, I think it's right for us to consider the gospel narratives we sing in songs and ask ourselves, do we really believe this? Are we, are we really moved in this way? At least figuratively in our hearts, are we falling to our knees and joining the angels, proclaiming His power and glory forevermore? Are we, are we there? Do we believe this gospel changes things? Do we have hope that goes beyond Christmas morning? Do we have hope for our children and their children? Do we have hope for our neighbors and our coworkers? Do we believe God changes things so much so that we would carry this truth with us or are we just singing a Christmas carol? Gospel belief matters because it's not just knowing things, it's hearing truth, receiving faith and moving to action. We must identify the false and disorienting narratives of our world and, and that's when I talk about the world and talk about conforming to culture, I'm also talking about Christian culture. There's some ways in the Bible Belt that we function as Christians that I don't believe is Christian at all. And these, these things within the Christian culture and our Christmas celebrations that we need to point out are distracting. Again, I'll remind you, I'm not a Bahumb, bahumbug. I don't know how to use that word. I'm not anti-Christmas. I love it. We have a tree. We have gifts. You can come to my house. You're going to smell Christmas smells and hear Christmas sounds. I'm not anti-Christmas. I'm anti-idol worship. I want us to worship Jesus. Amen. So we must proactively reorient our lives around the gospel narrative and not the narrative of culture. We have to identify we need to be. We need to be on alert for the way Satan uses the holidays. To draw us away from Christ into other things. To, put a, to convince us that putting our hope in other things is worth doing. This is true for all of life. But we have this opportunity during Christmas when everyone looks at Christ to say, hey, it really is about Christ and not just say the saying, remember the reason for the season. But to live a life that demonstrates it, whatever that may look like, however you're convicted, however the Spirit leads, that we'd be the people of God on a mission to make much of Christ during Christmas. Speaking of the people of God, let's reflect a little bit on this this narrative throughout Scripture. The people of God were historically broken, lost, struck with inescapable sin, enduring a history of dysfunction and obligation to an impossible law that they couldn't understand fully. They were captives, they were wanderers, they were rebels, they were idol worshipers, they were exiles with a promise yet to be fulfilled, totally missing the grace of God in all of it, depending on themselves and their own works and their own abilities, always. The prophets came to warn the people of God of their sin, to say specifically, you're in exile because of your sin, and you are removing yourself further and further from God the more you sin. They called the people of God to repentance, sent by God as the voice of God, the Lord demonstrating through the prophets and through the law that He was giving them grace upon grace upon grace because despite their sin, He was after them. He knew what they didn't know that it would take more than the law. It would take one who could totally fulfill the law. And the prophets told of the exile, but they also told of the exile coming to an end. A king that would come that's greater than any king that they could create, greater than King David. A deliverer that would come that, to prove they can't deliver themselves, greater than Moses the one who would come to return the people of God to the Father once and for all. Never could they return to the presence of God that Adam and Eve had in the garden once they were exiled. Never could they return in their own strength and their own righteousness. Despite the filth and the rebellion and the sin over and over again, the Lord steps in and Himself invades the brokenness and the mess. He came as a light in the darkness of a holy night he grew to be a faithful man, knowing the Word of God because he himself was the Word of God, free from sin, born of a virgin, not inheriting any sin from his Father. And he taught us to love one another. And then he took on wrath, meant for sinners. He bore it all on the cross outside of the city as an exile himself, and he conquered the dominion of darkness by rising victoriously establishing once and for all the kingdom of God. But there's still work to be done. So he left only to send his Spirit to fill his people, to be the embodiment of Christ on the earth, to continue this mission of standing for what is right and proclaiming what is true and being a people who seek God in all of life and able to do so by the righteousness of Christ because we've been washed in the blood that he spilled. And and then... He returns, not as a baby in a stinky manger, but as the Lord of Lords, the King of kings on a horse coming into battle to once and for all settle this and bring us into eternity to celebrate Him for eternity. So I wonder now if you can see why this night He was born might be considered holy. And listen, I know that this season is filled with all kinds of emotions. that, That not everything is sweet and warm and i tried to set a bit of a tone this morning to acknowledge that i see that and and though i repeatedly said i'm not about humbug i i do in a sense feel the sadness that comes with christmas i i i have experienced sad christmases i sympathize with my brothers and sisters who have pain this time of year and not joy i know well the depression that overwhelms any opportunity for joy any opportunity to feel hope, I know that it's not all good. But what's amazing is better than me knowing that, Christ knows it. That our Savior isn't some detached God watching us suffer. Instead, not only did He come to free us from sin, He came to share in the suffering. He he showed up in your mess because He loves you, And he knows your pain now because he has felt it. He bore it, the weight of it, all of it. And he will bring it to an end. And because he's come, we have reason to celebrate. So he knows our pain. And also the narrative is still being written. You are on the winning team. Even when you feel down, even when it seems like it's not going your way, even when you feel like there's not hope, there's not joy, we win this thing. He comes victorious. It's already been done, though it's not yet fully realized. We we know it comes to an end and we know how it ends because it's written out for us. And you have a role in this. And what is that role? Well, there is this weary world in sin and error pining for liberation and we carry with us the remedy. There is... A people of God no longer wandering in the wilderness, but brought into the presence of God that we could go back out into the world and bring the hope with us. There are people all over the world, some in this room, who need to know His law is love and His gospel is peace. There are some here today, and certainly we have friends and family and neighbors who are still shackled to sin. They are our brothers and our sisters. And Christ has come to break those chains. There are billions of people who don't know that they're even in darkness. And still, there are others in the bondage of oppressive, oppressive systems of injustice, longing for their brothers and their sisters to hear their cries and to come in and, and empathize with their suffering. And here we are with a song to sing, because we know the one who breaks the chains. We have a story to proclaim that combats and overcomes the false narratives of this world. A story about the worth of souls. One who restores all things. And by the king who came as a baby in a manger, we're sure he'll come as a king of kings. and We can proclaim it because that's what gives us hope. Not all the other things about Christmas. So no matter how dark it seems, Christ is light and He broke through the darkness in a way that the darkness cannot overcome it. It cannot, it will not ever overcome it. You will have trials and troubles, but take heart for He has overcome the world. So come all ye faithful, rest ye merry in the goodness, the grace of God, the God of peace, and let us come together and pray and long for Christ to return. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. So come, O come, Emmanuel. As you have come on this holy night, we know you'll come again. Let that be our prayer. Help us cling to the hope and remember the refrain. Until you do, with sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we, let all within us praise your holy name. Christ is the Lord, oh praise His name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your grace, your goodness. Thank you for being our Father, for loving us in this, the ways that we heard proclaimed this morning. Let it be true of us that we stand first and foremost for Christ, that, that our lives would be centered around the truth of your gospel, that in everything we do, and everything we enjoy, and everything we celebrate, let Christ be worshiped that we could be your people, though broken and flawed in need of reminders often. That we would be aware of your mercies renewed every day. That we would bring our requests to you knowing that you will give us peace no matter how anxious we feel. And God, as I feel especially burdened for those who are broken and, and, and feel a lostness, I pray that your light would shine brightly through your people we'd be a beacon of hope for the world, that we'd be faithful reminders to our brothers and sisters that there is reason for hope, and that as we go to, to be with family and friends this season of Christmas, the temptation will be there to, to be selfish, to, to indulge, the temptation will be present to make it about us in a thousand ways, but I pray that your, your sweet spirit would be near, that we'd we'd sense you, that we'd be reminded of you in the small things and in the big things that we'd celebrate you in life. Lord, be worshiped among us, not just here this morning as we take communion and reflect on Advent and sing songs of praise, but be with us as we go, that we'd love well, that we'd love one another well, that we'd equip one another for the work to be done, that you would be glorified in all of life. In Jesus' name, amen.